On a hot, sweltering day in July of 1505, a promising young law student was making his way from his university to home when a storm came upon him. Lightning crashed right beside him, knocking him to the ground, and instinctively he cried out, St. Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. This man grew up in a home whose patron saint was St. Anne, the patron saint for minors. His father was a minor. And so instinctively he cried out for salvation in this moment. And as he got back up to his knees and hurried home, he intended to keep that vow. And of course that man's name was Martin Luther. He entered into the monastery near his university and intended to spend the rest of his days there. And he said at one point, if ever there was a man who could make it to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He followed the instructions of his monastery to a T. He would spend hours in confession, seeking to, to, to name everything, every possible thing that was out of line in his life before the priest to receive absolution or, or the forgiveness of sins. and His soul, even though it was saved from the storm outside, was brewing another storm as he couldn't find relief from his guilty conscience. At one time, he and a friend of his was sent to Rome to do some official business for his monastery. And when he made that some 800-mile journey on foot and finally saw Rome, he cried out, Hail, holy city! And when he made his way in there, his heart became broke. He saw the Pope living in luxury. He saw the corruption of the priests, many of whom were openly, shamelessly in sexual immorality. He made his way to this place called the Sacra Santa, which was stairs, which were said to be the very stairs that Jesus himself climbed on his way to trial with Pilate. Some believe that these stairs were transported by angels to Rome. And the church at the time taught that if you were to climb these stairs on your knees, for every stair you climb, you would have time in purgatory reduced by nine years. And if you made it all the way to the top, you could receive complete freedom from having to spend any time in purgatory. Martin Luther determined to climb these stairs, not for himself, but for his grandfather, seeking to liberate him from purgatory. But when he got to the top, he said, who knows if these things are true? As he continued to study the scriptures, he made that famous statement where he nailed 95 theses for debate on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He was seeking to reform the church within and wanted to talk about what was going on and if we we're applying the scriptures correctly. Part of the storm brewing in his soul was not only his guilty conscience, not only his struggle with a corrupt church, but also his struggle with the scriptures. And particularly, this one verse in the book of Romans, in which the Apostle Paul says this, For in it, that is, the gospel of Jesus, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He struggled because he saw himself as unrighteous. And he tells us this, These words, righteous, and the righteousness of God, struck my conscience as flashes of lightning, frightened me each time I heard them. If God is righteous, he punishes. In his mind, if God is, is holy and just and righteous, 
he has to deal with sin. And as Martin Luther saw himself as a sinner, he struggled with that immensely. And he goes on and says, I hated the phrase, the righteousness of God. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being appeased by my good works. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. Day and night I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He didn't understand what this meant. He saw himself as unrighteous, even though he believed in Jesus. He thought he needed to add to the righteousness of Christ his own perfect life, and he fell short of it time and again. And then he tells us this. He says, Then finally, God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn, altogether had entered uh, and had entered uh, paradise. You see, what Luther came to understand is that salvation is a gift of God to be received, not something that we can achieve. And that is because we are justified before God by faith alone, apart from any good works. A century later, some of the best minds in Europe came together at what was called the Westminster Assembly, and they ironed out a confession of faith. They originally called together to, to revise the 39 articles of the Church of England, and they ended up just writing a complete new uh, confession of faith. And they put a catechism with it, which is a series of questions and answers. And they asked the question, what is justification? And the answer is, as they crystallize the scriptural teaching, justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ alone, uh, I'm sorry, because of the righteousness of Christ given to us and received by faith alone. Justification, according to these reformers, was an act of God's free grace in which he declares people like you and me who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, he declares us free from our sin, forgiven. And not just simply forgiven, but righteous in Christ because of Christ's righteousness that's given to us. And so Martin Luther would later say, just as intensely as I hated the expression the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praise this most pleasant phrase, this passage from Paul became to, me, uh, became to me the very gate of paradise. He saw righteousness, not as something he had to attain, but as a gift that was given to him. And so we celebrate that truth here at Mercy Hill when we sing that song, In Christ Alone. You remember these words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. The magisterial reformers, including Martin Luther, taught that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. If we get this right, we have Christ. If we get this wrong, we lose him. And many people say, yes. That's great. And then they read the book of James, and they see James saying this. 
We see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. How do we process this? How do we process this understanding that righteousness is a gift of God received by faith alone with this teaching of James that a person is not justified by faith alone but by works? This frustrated Martin Luther who said the book of James is an epistle of straw. And by that he meant there are places in the New Testament documents that are crystal clear on the doctrine of the gospel. And there are other ones that were not written by apostles, such as the book of James, that may have some good things in it. But at the end, it, it can be burned up. We, we lose nothing if we ignore James. And I was told by a member of our church who attended another church for a number of years that an elder in his church told him that the book of James should not even be in the New Testament, which is interesting. But we've been making our way through the book of James, and we're not going to skip this passage. We're going to dive in and seek to understand what in the world is James saying here. Now, remember the context that we've been looking at. James is concerned about a counterfeit faith that is masquerading as genuine faith. Anyone can say they believe in Jesus. But what if that's a counterfeit faith? And so James gives us in the heart of this letter four case studies. We looked at two of them last week, two negative examples, and we're going to look at two positive examples this week. But by way of refresher, let me just remind you of how James has set this whole argument up. In verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it if someone says they believe that Jesus is the king and the savior of the world, but their life doesn't show it? He goes on and gives that illustration, which you heard Shannon and Tyler read, about a brother or sister in poor condition, without clothes and without food, coming into the church, and, and the Christian saying to that person, go in peace, shalom, be fed, be warmed, and doesn't do anything to help that person. James says, well, what good is your Christianity? What good is it? The implication is it's good for nothing. It doesn't benefit that person, and it doesn't benefit the person saying that they believe in Jesus. And so that James caps up that section by saying, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James says there's such a thing as a dead faith. A person who says something, but there's no actions to back it up. And James... <laughs> This is really the heart of his argument. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The key word in this sentence is show. Show me your faith. Show me your invisible faith apart from your works. James says, I'm waiting. Of course, it's impossible to do that. But James says, I will show you my faith. I will show you that I believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation by my works, by the way that I live. And we asked this question last week that was asked of me when I was in high school at my youth group. If you were arrested for being a follower of Jesus, what would be the evidence against you? James imagines the person that he's interacting with saying this, I believe in God, the one God. Of course, that's an echo of the Shema in the Old Testament that every Jew at the time of Jesus would say every morning, I believe that God is one. So James says, you believe that God is one? You do well. In other words, great. 
You have something in common with demons. Even they believe that God is one, and yet they shudder. James might be able to put it like this. You say you believe in Jesus, that he's the king of this world? Great, even demons believe in Jesus. They know he's the son of God. He knows he's the savior of the world. If that's all you got and have no life that's changed, you need to ask some deep questions. And we made this point last week. Having correct doctrine is not the same thing as having genuine saving faith. And so, my friends, with that long introduction, we come to the point of our sermon today and the passage we're going to look at, which is verses 20 through 26. So we're calling our study today, Faith Works Part 2. And so, James begins in chapter 2, verse 20, with this question. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Here's that idea of, of seeing something, seeing faith. So do you want to be shown, oh foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Someone says, that doesn't sound very Christian, James, calling someone a foolish person. What's up with that? One translation puts it like this. You want to be shown, you ignoramus. <laughs> that word foolish can be translated into English from the Greek as foolish or vain or devoid of truth, but it can also be translated as empty or empty-handed. And I think that's actually what James is talking about, that second definition there. Remember, this is the person he's interacting with who says, I have faith but no works. I believe in Jesus, but it hasn't changed my life. And so he says, do you want to be shown, you empty-handed person, empty of good works, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he says something which he's assuming you know the story of. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. If you know the backstory, great. I'm going to give you a refresher on that. If you don't know it, let's go back and look at the example of Abraham. What James is referring to here is an episode that happened in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, when God tested Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Most of us freak out with this passage. What in the world is God doing here? Let's back up and tell the story leading up to this chapter. So Genesis chapter 1 talks about a good creation from God. But it gets off track by the rebellion of humanity. So five times in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it talks about this world being cursed. And you could probably summarize very well what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11 with this passage from Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man. It was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a diagnosis of humanity, that every inclination of the intentions of his thoughts and of his heart were only evil continually. It's in that context that God summons an elderly man to follow him. That man was Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, right after that first 11 chapters that contain the word curse five times. In three short verses, God brings up blessing. So God appears to Abraham and says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
God so loved the world that he gave Abraham to the world, that through Abraham he would bring about the reversal of the curse. It would come through him and through his family line, ultimately in one of his descendants by the name of Jesus. He was given this promise. Three chapters later, in Genesis chapter 15, he remains childless. There seems to be no answer to this promise that God made that he would have descendants. And so God takes him out and says to him, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, in a moment of doubt, said, God, I have no descendants. Where is your promise? And God takes him out and says, look at these stars. For those of us who live in the city, we look up and we go like, there's like five or six of them up there. But if you get outside the city, and you can actually see on a dark night the Milky Way, the bands of the Milky Way, and just the amount of stars is mind-boggling. That's what was shown to him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he received this promise that he would have descendants. And then another year passes and another year passes, and another year passes. No, no descendants, no children, no evidence that God is keeping his promise until he turns 100 years old. And he and his wife, Sarah, have a son. This literally is the miracle child. The son that came to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And thus, the initial phase of God's promise is being worked out. This was the promised child. Through him, through his descendants, would come the Savior of the world. And it's through that son that one day God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice him for me. What? God wants me to kill the promised one? This, this answer to his promise? But you see, there's something else going on at work here. God was testing Abraham and if we were to, to exegete Genesis chapter 22, I would make the case with you that God knew exactly what Abraham was going to do. And I would make the case with you that Abraham knew exactly what God was going to do. It just needed to be played out in real time. And in fact, we're told in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham raised that knife to sacrifice the promised child, that God said to him, do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Later on, we're told that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. You see, so convinced was Abraham that this would not end in death for his son, that even if he killed his son with that knife, then God would bring him back from the dead. Because God had to. He bound himself and the salvation of the world to Abraham and his descendants. And so that's the backstory. When Abraham, I'm sorry, when James asks in chapter 2, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, remember, James is interested in a real world spirituality. I will show you my faith by my works. Along the lines of what Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. James says, you see, you can see. 
that faith was active. You can see that Abraham's faith was active along with his works. And faith, that is Abraham's faith, was completed by his works. That word completed is the word that we get our English word telos from, which means a goal or an end in sight. It literally means, in the original language, to bring to maturity, to be brought to its intended goal. When God called Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, what he intended, the the outcome of calling him, his work in Abraham, was that Abraham would trust him no matter what. And so Abraham, by being willing to sacrifice his son, showed that his faith was brought to maturity. It justified, you could say, in a sense, God's initial calling of him. And then he says this in verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. What scripture was fulfilled? The scripture in Genesis chapter 15 that was fulfilled brought to its intended completion by his willingness to sacrifice his son in Genesis chapter 22. We're told in Genesis 15 that James now quotes in James chapter 2 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. At that moment, when Abraham simply trusted God with a promise that he would bring about salvation, he was counted as righteous. Abraham wasn't righteous in himself. If you know the story of Abraham, he was a scoundrel in many ways. But what initially happened in Genesis 15 was that God brought him to a true saving faith. And then what happened in Genesis chapter 22 was that Abraham's actions brought to maturity the faith of Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham's works justified his faith in God and his promise. That word justified can also have the sense of verified, which I think is entirely appropriate. What, what Abraham did in Genesis chapter 22 verified the faith that he had in Genesis 15. And so we come to this most controversial of statements. James says in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is part of what drove Martin Luther crazy. And this is part of the reason why many people in Protestant churches don't like the book of James. They look at this and they say, wow, that sounds like it's contradicting what Paul teaches elsewhere. But let's dial in on this. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Remember the context of what he is saying. You see that a person, what person? The person who claims to believe Jesus is the king and savior of the world is justified before others. That is, their faith is seen, it's verified by works and not, you might say, by the mere claim to have faith alone. Now let's see if I can crystallize this a bit for us here. If you take the words of James out of context and you take the words of Paul out of context and put them side by side, it looks like a contradiction. Let me just say this. It is a contradiction. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. And James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
You see that? Protestants, they like to hang out with Paul. Yay, Paul, he's our guy. And Roman Catholics say, hey, James, he's our guy. My friends, listen to this closely. If James and Paul are talking about the same thing, then Scripture teaches two different ways of salvation. And Protestants and Catholics should then be very concerned because that would mean the Scriptures contradict themselves. Do they contradict themselves? James and Paul talking about the same thing. When we look at Paul in context, when he says what he's saying, Paul is combating those who teach that good works in some very real sense merit justification. That is, merits forgiveness of sins. That merits eternal life. And so to those people who are thinking that way, he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's concern. James has a different concern. James is combating those who say that good works are optional for the Christian life. James is concerned with people who have counterfeit faith, who have no evidence, no works visible in their life. And so to them, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's not talking about being justified before the bar of God. He's talking about Other people seeing evidence of your faith. Remember, show me your faith apart from works. John Calvin summarized the scriptural teaching when he put it like this. It is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is never alone. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. When you and I believe in God through Jesus Christ, it is credited to us as righteousness. But that belief that we have is never by itself. It can't be by itself. James says it's a living faith. It's an active faith. It will demonstrate itself in a changed life. So here he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So remember the issue he's addressing. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Your life either justifies the claim that you believe in God, or it contradicts it. James goes on in verse 25, and I want to apologize to Rahab up front because we're not going to give her very much time at all. But James only gives her one verse too. He says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And of course, he's referring to the book of Joshua and Rahab the prostitute who was Um, encamped at an outpost of the military of the nation that occupied Palestine at the time. And these messengers had come to the city, and her people started looking for them because they had heard of the great miracles that God had done in liberating his people from slavery in Egypt, and they are terrified now of the God of Israel. And they heard that some of his people are in their city, and they're looking for him. And what Rahab does is she hides them, and she points the guards in a different direction. And so she trusted in the God of Israel at that time, and her, her life demonstrated it at great risk to herself. She protected these messengers and then sent them out when it was safe. And so Rahab herself 
her claim to believe in, in, the, in the true God of Israel was justified by her works or verified by them. And then James closes his argument this, like this. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Just like you know a person is dead because there's no life in them anymore. There's no spirit. It has left. He says, so also faith apart from works is dead. If there's no faith, I'm sorry, if there are no works, the faith is dead. If there's no evidence of of a changed life. I'm not saying you have to be perfect, James says. (laughs) I'm not saying that you are all that you ever will be. But if there's no evidence of a changed life, if there's no fruit whatsoever, you have a dead, counterfeit faith. And James says that faith does not save anyone. So if I can summarize what James is saying, this is my best shot. A genuine faith which truly clings to Christ is a faith that is alive. This living faith will express itself in tangible, visible deeds of love. And these deeds justify, that is, verify the claim to faith in King Jesus. I hope that was helpful. I, I told my wife yesterday, I said, I'm, I'm so worried about this passage, not only because it's difficult, because there's so much to get our heads wrapped around. I said, I think I'm going to lose everybody, and I can see everyone is checked in. So thank you for that. A couple points of application, three particularly. First one is this. Let's rejoice that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Remember the thief on the cross who had no good works to offer to Jesus, simply said to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What saved him? Was it his good works? No. Was it a promise that in the future he will do better? (laughs) He has no future. It was simply a cry of faith, of a living faith that said, Jesus, would you remember me? Now, of course, if he didn't die on the cross and somehow was healed from his wounds, that faith in Jesus would work itself out in transformation and good deeds. Remember, it was James himself who recognized justification by faith alone when he said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham believed God and then did a bunch of good things and then it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham simply believed God and God gave him the gift of righteousness. Paul, in writing to the Galatians, put it like this. Notice how he repeats himself over and over again in this. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember Paul's opponents. They're the ones who say that you can earn salvation by what you do. And so he says, no. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Scriptures tell us that we have now been justified by his blood. We are reconciled to God by the death of his son. It is not that we've been justified by the blood of Jesus plus our good works. It's not that we are reconciled to God by the death of Jesus and our good works. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Remember what he said when he expired on the cross. It is 
finished. Jesus doesn't need anything from you to save you. In fact, one person said, the only thing that we bring to Jesus are our sins that need to be forgiven. And that's true. So let's rejoice that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But here's a second point of application that I think that we need to to develop in our own lives. Let's develop a good theology of good works. Sometimes folks in Protestant churches, when they hold to that truth that we are not saved by our works, then all of a sudden, poo-poo good works. They say, it doesn't need to be a part of our life. That's what James is addressing. But that's not the case at all, my friends. Remember, Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Your salvation comes to you simply because you receive it, you believe it, and not because of your good works. But then he goes on in the very next breath and says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by our good works, but we're saved to do good works. And so let me put this up on the screen. I hope it's not too controversial. Every world religion, in some shape or fashion, tells you that salvation is achieved by your good efforts. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you can achieve salvation. Some folks, like the position of the Roman Catholic Church, says faith plus good works equals your salvation. And let me just be honest here. A lot of Protestants fall into this as well. They believe it's Jesus plus their efforts which achieves salvation for them. But if we're understanding what Paul is saying and what James is saying, we're saved by faith alone. But that faith alone produces good works. It has to, just like fruit trees produce fruit. And so my friends, let us, let us get that obedience is not a dirty word. Jesus wants us to obey him. In fact, at one point, he asked his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I mean, Jesus does expect us to obey him. And it's the nature of faith that it acts this way. Remember, the scriptures tell us that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. You're a brand new person. You're a living spiritual being. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Paul talks about the obedience of faith. In fact, he describes that as his mission, to call people in the Roman world to the obedience of faith. That is, a faith that trusts in Jesus that results in a lifetime of obedience. We might put it like this. Obedience is how our faith shows its allegiance and gratitude. If a faith does not show allegiance and it does not show gratitude, then James wants us to ask some deep questions. And so does Paul, and so does Jesus. So here's the final point of application. Not only do we need to rejoice that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not only do we need to develop a good, healthy theology of good works, but let's cultivate a faith that expresses itself in love. And let me, let me conclude by telling you this final story. When I lived in Calgary and helped start New, New City Church there, I came to know of this man who was a friend of some people in our congregation. His name was Peter Petrovich. Same name as the lead character in Crime and Punishment. I asked him if he knew that. He said, yes, everybody tells me. But as a young man, he had a brilliant mind 
and a love of sports cars. In fact, his, his wall in this care facility was filled with pictures of him young, as, as a young man and models of sports cars. And when I met him, he still had control of his right hand. He was diagnosed at age 23, I meant to tell you this. At age 23, he was diagnosed as having multiple sclerosis. And as the years went on, he lost more and more function of his body. And so when I met him, he was in a wheelchair. And he could still move his right arm. Everything else had to be done for him. Day after day, nurses had to come get him up out of bed, put him into a chair. They had to give him a bath and to change his diapers. But when I met him, he could still move his hand. And what he would do with his world compressed and confined to a single room in a care facility was he would, he would scour the internet for what we would call dad jokes. And he would print off a page of them and put them in an envelope for his caregivers. And he would also print off a Bible verse and put that in the envelope. And he had also put money in the envelope to give to them so they could treat themselves to a meal. He would have people like me bring food and drinks to stock his refrigerator, not for himself, but for his caregivers. This man believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though his world shrunk, his faith was expressing itself and wanting to be a blessing to others and seeking to do good to others. And as he lost control of that right hand, and as he couldn't move anything anymore, I watched this man mourn the fact that he could not do more to be a blessing to others. And so what he relied on was people like me and other friends who would come and visit him to be able to print out those dad jokes and to print out Bible verses and to put some of his money in an envelope to give to his caretakers so that he could be a blessing. If a man like Peter Petrovich confined and immobilized, had a faith that expressed itself in love, how much more should us, those of us who, who have freedom of body, who have all kinds of opportunities for our faith in Jesus Christ to be expressed in visible, tangible deeds of love, how much more so should that be the case? What my friend was doing was he was showing to all his faith, his good faith, and in everything he did, he adorned the doctrine of God our Savior. May it be the same in our lives as well. So Mercy Hill Church, may your saving faith in Jesus express itself in love and good deeds. And may the way you live your life and the way that you interact with the broken and fallen world verify your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, make it so.